to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I'm broadcasting from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining in today. Glad you guys could be here. I'm always happy to be here. And, uh, you know, if you haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button yet, be sure you go ahead and do so. And if you like what you're hearing, give me a rating, give me a review. It goes a long way and helps me out. And of course, I just want to know what you're thinking out there. So definitely let me know. Now you guys can also follow me on Instagram at speakadogcast, Facebook speakadogcast, or just find the website speakadogcast.com. Now let's get this show going today. First segment today is going to be all about anxiety and dogs, and I'm sure this is going to apply to a few of you out there, so you're definitely going to want to listen in. Following that, we have our breed of the week, then comes our guest spot, and today's guest is Carol Novello from Mutual Rescue. This is going to be an awesome guest spot today, guys. We're going to talk all about her organization and that they bring to light the importance of rescuing animals and the greater impact they can have on people's lives. It's really, really cool stuff. And not only are we going to be talking about that, we're going to be talking about Carol's new book, also called entitled Mutual Rescue. Now, you can find this book on Amazon. You can find it on Audible, all different mediums out there to be able to get it. But again, Carol Novella, we're going to be chatting today and it's going to be a wonderful guest spot. Then following our guest spot comes the listener Q&A, and if you guys have any questions for that listener Q&A, email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. But before we start everything off today, I've got to give you that trivia question. This week's trivia question is, how many eyelids does a dog have? Now I'll be giving you the answer to that question somewhere in today's episode, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the podcast. Next up on Speak a Dogcast, it's a segment all about anxiety and dogs. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is anxiety as a term. Now, anxiety really is kind of a blanket term, is the way I see it, because here's the thing anxiety can be fear, can be obsessiveness. Anxiety can also be excitement. It could be overexcitement, right? So, a dog getting excited to see you when you get home and they start panting, and that's anxiety. There's anxiety behind that. Now, again, it doesn't mean the dog is depressed. (laughs) Uh, That's anxiety as well. But that's my point. It's sort of a blanket term, and anxiety can mean a variety of different things. Now, when I talk about anxiety in dogs, I'm more specifically referring to the extremes. The obsessive behaviors is what ends up happening. That's when anxieties really develop for a dog. I've discovered when things become obsessive or... When things kind of go beyond their control, if the dog feels like things are not in control and stable, but then again, that leans more toward the dog becoming obsessive about it. And we're back to that again. So when I'm talking about anxiety, I am talking about what you're thinking about as anxiety, separation, anxiety, those kinds of behaviors. Now, with that said, last uh, last episode, last week, I did a segment on separation anxiety. Feel free to go back and listen to that first. The way I see it is this is going to be sort of a continuation into that in a more in-depth version. Now, disclaimer, <laughs> I am going to attempt to not jump on my soapbox, to not go too much off on a tangent, because this topic can go in so many different directions. And I mean, look, I'll just be honest, I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> uh, if you couldn't tell, I like to talk. Um, no, but it, it's it's... It's, it's a broad topic, anxiety. And like I said, there's a lot of, a lot of different avenues we can go down here. So I'm going to try to break it down into a few things. We've, we've got to talk about anxiety and how it's viewed by the average owner and by myself and, and, and <laughs> who's right, who's wrong. Uh, we're going to talk about that, okay? So that's the first thing. We also need to talk about medication and anxiety and medicating dogs. Yeah, we're, we're definitely touching on that today. Um, we also have to talk about what we can do to fix and alleviate these issues, right? What's the training side of it? How do we get past anxiety? Okay, so what can you do to make it better. So we're going to try to break it down into those things. I'm probably going to go off on a tangent, so I'm just warning you now. Uh, (laughs) It's going to happen. There's going to be a rant. Uh, How could there not be? All right. So here's where we're going to start. The first thing is, is actually disclaimer number two. 
as I've said it before, I'm not always going to say things that you're going to like. As a matter of fact, that's my job. As an animal behavior specialist, as someone who goes in and works mostly now with pets, and I go into people's homes to fix behavioral issues, it's my job to tell people things they don't want to hear. Okay? I warn my clients of that. I do. I, you know, my, my job is, is to tell you what you're doing wrong, right? And not only that, I don't sugarcoat things. I try to be as honest with my clients as I possibly can. And I try to do the same thing with you guys on this podcast, really. Um, my goal is to be honest with you and tell you the truth because animals don't hide. <laughs> the, 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 there's, there's no BS with animals, as I've talked about before. What you see is what you get. Um, to, to halfway quote, and I, I'll butcher the exact quote itself, but I, I said it once before on the show, and it's worth saying again. It's Steve Irwin, and you know he says something to the effect of that, I trust a crocodile more than a human. When I go in that enclosure with that crocodile, I know his intentions. He wants to kill me. With a human, they'll say you're your best, they're your best friend, and then turn around and stab you in their back, stab you in the back, right? Uh, again, some, something to that effect. And, uh, you know, he used to say that, and it's, it's so true. It's so true. And so I view it as I can't sugarcoat things. I am doing my client, and for that matter, the dog, a disservice if I sugarcoat things to my client because sugarcoating is lying. It's not being truthful. It's not being honest. And who are we helping if I'm not being honest about what the situation is, what's really happening behaviorally, okay? Now, of course, there's tact and there's certain ways to approach things in telling my clients the truth, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, I need to be honest. At the end of the day, at some point in our training, we have to have an honest chat, right? That's what has to happen. So I'm going to have that honest chat with you guys today, and here it is. In my 10 plus years of experience of training dogs and working with animals, in my experience, most dogs have anxiety issues. You heard me right. Most dogs that you see out there have anxiety issues. Think about it. Think about it yourself. When you, with your experience with dogs and your friends' dogs, family dogs, dogs you see out on the street, how many of those dogs don't whine when their owners leave? How many of those dogs know how to walk on a leash properly? How many of those dogs don't have an obsessive behavior over some toys? How many of those dogs aren't destructive at home? How many of those dogs can go in a crate properly? How many of those dogs can walk by another dog without losing their mind, whining, or any of those things? If you thought about it right now, I could almost guarantee that the vast majority of you know more dogs with those behavioral issues than you know dogs that don't. There's the proof right there. <laughs> There's the proof that most dogs out there have anxiety issues. Look... A couple years back, I was lucky enough to do some traveling around the world a bit, and um, we went to China, and we went to Hong Kong. And what was fascinating to me is for the most part, for the most part, I could not get over how well-behaved people's dogs were in the streets there. They were. These were people that had their dogs on leash. They'd walk by each other. The dogs could sniff, 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 say hello very quickly, and they walk away, and no issues. I couldn't get over it. It was amazing. It was incredible. It was proof that dogs don't have to be anxious. I mean, I knew that. <laughs> but it was incredible to watch and see, as a whole, people treating their dogs like dogs. And imagine that getting better results. You know, I, I read... Uh, I've read Caesar Dog Whisperer's books, and he tells stories about him growing up in Mexico, and dogs ran free, and they had a purpose, they had jobs, there was no... And dogs were well, more well-behaved in Mexico than they were on the streets of America. And, of course, in the streets of America, everybody's pampering their dogs and putting them in strollers and dressing them up and painting their toenails and treating them like little humans instead of dogs. Gee, I wonder why our dogs have anxiety issues, guys. <laughs> Oh boy, the reason that dogs have anxiety is because we as their owners are failing them. We are not fulfilling their needs. We like to think we are fulfilling their needs, but the reality is we're fulfilling our own needs and we're not even thinking about theirs. You know, sometimes when I tell a client that their dog has anxiety issues, the client knows it and they already are aware and 
all good, right? Conversation goes the right direction and we work to fix it and everything's great. Other times, like a couple weeks ago, I told a client their dog has anxiety and it's only 11 months old. And they both looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) I'm serious. They both looked at me like I'm crazy. It's amazing how people won't trust um, you know, an expert that you're hiring to, to, to give you their professional opinion they do. And you're like, oh, I can't be it. I've loved this dog for 10 months or eight months, whatever. Uh, I've loved this dog for eight months. I've given it food again. How, 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 why, why, I don't, how could this dog have anxiety issues? Because you're not exercising it. You're not giving it fulfillment. There's no structure. There's no rules. There's no boundaries. So again, I, I know some of you out there might not be happy with me right now, but you know something, I'm sorry. My job is to be truthful. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, right? Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Uh, (laughs) My job is to be truthful. And just because you don't like what I have to say isn't going to make it any less truthful. So there it is, right? There it is. Oh boy. And yeah, that, you know, the worst part is, is these these anxious behaviors that manifest in dogs, they end up becoming the norm and society views them as a norm. You know, I hear it a lot where it's, it's just, it's a dog being a dog. Oh, just let them be dogs. That's what a dog does. Dogs jump all over people. Dogs bark their heads off of people incessantly. <laughs> oh, they play rough to the point of, of, of drawing blood. That's what dogs do. <laughs> Seriously? You don't think that dog has some anxiety issues over playtime if it's playing so rough that it's drawing blood of other dogs? That's acceptable behavior to you. This is my problem is really my job is to not train dogs. My job is to change the perspective of people, of what a dog is. Okay. Okay. So let's stay on track here, David. Let's not go too off and too nuts. Um, But, you know, it, it, it does. It blows my mind what people put up with behaviorally. Look, I'll tell you just one little quick story. A couple years ago, I had a shepherdy mix of some kind. The dog is eight years old. They call me. They tell me the dog has been biting people for, oh, I don't know, eight years. I ask always, have you guys ever worked with a trainer previously? And they told me no. So they've had this dog since it was a puppy. Within the first few weeks they got this dog as a puppy, as a small puppy, this dog took a chunk out of their two-year-old child's head. You heard me right. This dog took a chunk out of a two-year-old child's head, their child's head, and they didn't think then, hey, maybe we should train or fix this behavior, right? Maybe we should do something about this. So this dog would actually steal sandwiches, steal food out of people's hands, become possessive over it. He ended up biting the children's friends over the years as they, as they went on, as the kids got older and their friends came over. This dog had bit, I don't know how many people. Now at that point, guys, behaviorally, this becomes very difficult to undo. This dog has practiced biting, possessiveness, and has gotten away with it for eight years. To me, this is a downright dangerous situation. I tried to explain that to them in great detail, but we did, I think, only three sessions. I mean, this was quite a few years ago, if I remember correctly, about three sessions, and they never followed through. I don't know what even happened. Don't know what happened to this dog, because they never followed through. Tried to get them to set up our next session. Couldn't, never heard back. You can only chase somebody down so much. So it's amazing to me what people will put up with with dogs and then chalk it up to it's a dog being a dog. No, it's you being a bad owner and letting your dog get away with things they shouldn't be getting away with because it's a dog. Treat your dog like a dog. If you're not, you're doing them a disservice. That's one way you can avoid giving your dog anxiety. Stop catering to them. That brings me to the next point, food, food and anxiety. They go hand in hand with dogs all the time. Now, guys, if you are letting your dog graze, you need to stop it. You do. Okay. Grazing is not a natural behavior for a dog. They're not horses. (laughs) They're not goats. They're not cows. You know why? Because they're not prey animals. They're predators. So this goes back to instinct. Okay. Food doesn't just sit around all day 
for a predator, right? There's there's grass and food everywhere for prey. I mean, my, my horse has got a pasture full of it and he gets grain and he gets his hay and he gets all kinds of good stuff, right? But the point is he's got hay lying around, or excuse me, he's got the pasture lying around all day for him. He's got food available all day. And as a matter of fact, as we know with horses, he has to eat constantly pretty much, right? He has to eat all day. Uh, it's the way his, his digestive system works, but we're not getting into that. But the point is I understand how a horse works. Dogs, on the other hand, they don't need to eat all day. They don't graze. Okay, people, they hunt. They hunt. That's why it's important that I provide a task for my dog. Even something as simple as a sit, stay, putting down the food, getting them to watch me, releasing them to their food. That's what I do with my dogs every single meal. Every single meal, sit, stay, release to the food. Okay, because they need a task to perform to earn their food because it simulates it's a it's an artificial task that helps simulate the hunt. Believe it or not. Yes. Something that minimal. I can't just do that and think I'm fulfilling my dog that one little thing. (laughs) But that's one way we can do it. You know, it's very common. And this is what we're going to talk about. Grace. So here's here's the reason why we can't leave that bowl full of food. Okay, like I said, dogs don't grace. Right. That's that's just it. But here's the proof of it. It's very common. And look, you're going to, some of you listening are going to go, oh my gosh, that's my dog. How did he know? <laughs> it's very common that a dog who has his food left down all day won't finish it, right? Obviously, because it's sitting there all day. Uh, he's not finishing it in one sitting. And what they'll do is they'll go over and they'll grab a kibble and they'll take it and they'll go over to somewhere else in the house and eat that one piece of kibble. It's usually a particular spot on a carpet or something like that. And what's happening is this goes back to a dog only being able to focus on one thing at a time. I've talked about this previously. Dogs can only focus literally on one thing at a time. So when a dog is bent over and eating, this is instinct, right? When they're bent over and eating, they are naturally vulnerable. They know it. It's the same thing when a dog is peeing and pooping. I mean, it's no no different. Uh, When a dog is bent over and they can't watch their backside, they are vulnerable, so if a dog has anxiety issues, boom, we're at the hierarchy of needs, guys. Y'all have heard of hierarchy of needs. If a dog doesn't feel safe to just sit there, bend over and eat their food for two minutes, then they don't feel safe and they have anxiety issues. The hierarchy of needs is telling me that. This isn't my opinion. This is, this is, other guys figured this stuff out, right? If I had figured out the hierarchy of needs, I'd be retired and wouldn't need to do a podcast or work as a trainer. <laughs> Um, but no, that's the reality. I'm following the rules of psychology and I just, I just follow the pattern and the pattern tells me if the dog doesn't want to bend over and eat comfortably and and is cool with it, then he doesn't feel safe by definition of the hierarchy of needs. Boom, right there. So if your dog does not eat all their food in one sitting, your dog has some anxiety issues. Even if it's just minor anxiety, there's still some anxiety there. There's anxiety overeating, bare minimum, I can tell you that, without knowing anything else about your dog, just knowing that. So allowing them to practice that anxiety, allowing them to graze, allowing them to take that food obsessively over to that corner and eat it, that only makes anxiety worse. You have to fix that. Okay, that's one of the first things I start with when I have anxious dogs that come into my boot camp programs. First thing we have to fix is the eating. Okay, we need them to eat their food because what I look, I I had a dog in my care who did not eat for six days, not by my choice, not by my choice. Uh uh, I gave him breakfast and dinner every single day. I even offered treats intermittently throughout the day. This dog would not take one speck of food. That's how anxious he was. That's how severe his anxiety was. But here's the thing, guys. A dog is not going to starve themselves to death. They're just not going to do it. It doesn't work that way. They're not going to starve themselves to death. Unless there's something uh, physically or medically wrong, they're not going to do that. And wouldn't you know it, day seven rolled around and that dog went, oh, wolf down their food. And we never had a problem with eating with that dog ever again. Because he ate and then he went, whoa, look at that. I I ate all my food and I didn't die. Cool. (laughs) We changed the pattern. We made him realize not eating doesn't get you anywhere. Being obsessive about that food doesn't get you anywhere. But eating your whole meal works pretty darn well for you, bud. Do that instead. Okay. 
So food and anxiety go hand in hand a lot. If your dog doesn't want to eat anytime food is presented, there's anxiety over food, and then most likely he's got anxiety issues elsewhere. Okay. So this brings us to the next part of the conversation. Now, naturally, living in the modern world that we live in, people all want the quick fix. And the quick fix for anxiety in 2021 is medicating the hell out of your dog. It's like it's the newest fad, and I'll be honest, guys, I think it's despicable how much and how often I am seeing vets write scripts for anti-anxiety meds for dogs. Now, disclaimer, I am by no means anti-vaccination, I am by no means anti-medication in general, and for that matter, I'm not even anti-anxiety meds, because for me to be anti would say that I never see a use or a need for them, and that's not true, that's not the case. But... In my 10 plus years of training dogs and animals, I have recommended the use of anti-anxiety medication one time. One time. And I actually talked about this dog on one of my previous podcasts. One time I have ever recommended anybody go talk to a vet about using anti-anxiety meds with their dogs. At the end of the day, if you want to solve behavioral anxiety issues, you have to address the behavioral anxiety issue. We all want the quick fix, I get it, I understand, but that's not how behavior works. Think about it. Even if you take anxiety meds yourself as a human, there's side effects to the medications, are there not? There's no quick fix. There's always a give and take. And to me, with dogs and humans, we're, well, to me with dogs, anxiety meds are a band-aid they don't fix the problem. I've talked about this before. It doesn't teach you to stop falling down and skinning your knee. A Band-Aid doesn't teach you that. You have to tell them behaviorally to fix their actions, fix their behavior, if they want to stop falling down and skinning their knee again. The Band-Aid fixes it short-term, but doesn't fix the problem long-term. And that's what I think anti-anxiety meds are with dogs. Because I ask people that, I go, all right, we'll do that. First of all, I discover more often than not, the med doesn't even work for the dog. Seriously. They have to go through like 18 different medications to find the one that works. <laughs> ridiculous. So you're pumping this dog full of all this crap. It's ridiculous. It's just silly. Okay. Again, I'm not anti-meds. But for crying out loud, people, for crying out loud, address the behavioral problem. Look, I'll be honest and I'll rant for a second about the human world. I feel like it's the same in the human world. Anti-anxiety meds are way overprescribed, way overprescribed. You know what? I have an anti-anxiety medication for you. You ready for it? Go out and walk your dog. Get yourself outside. Get some sun. Go get dirty. Go hiking, go for a walk, go rollerblading, play a sport in a community league, go for a bike ride, go to the beach, go kayaking, lay in the sun, go out and plant a garden and get your hands dirty. You know where I live, there's a lot of farmers and ranchers, and you know what? None of them look depressed to me. <laughs> there have actually been studies done that say feeling dirt between your fingers and underneath your nails it actually acts as an antidepressant. You heard me correctly. Dirt is an antidepressant. Getting out and experiencing the natural world around you can make you feel better, people. Again, there are times, there are needs, there are specific cases and scenarios where anxiety meds are necessary, but they are so overprescribed. You want to make yourself feel happier? Get out and experience the world around you guys. It's the best way to do it. Look, I've, I've felt, I have felt depression in the past. I get it. I understand. Who doesn't feel that way at some point in their life? But you know something? <sighs> I avoid medications at all costs. I really do. I try to keep it natural. And I feel the same way about my dogs. Even more so about my dogs. Because you know what? They're more basic, guys. They don't need that stuff. The reason your dog has anxiety is you. I know you don't want to hear it, but it's true. The reason your dogs have anxiety is you. And the easiest way to solve that is exercise, getting outside, okay? So I'm, I'm going to get off the soapbox of the medications, but suffice it to say, guys, if you, and I'm sorry, veterinarians out there that do this, I really am, but if your vet just wants to start tossing medications at you, 
be careful, be mindful. Don't, don't, don't just immediately jump on that bandwagon. Now, with that said, when I do come across a dog with anxiety issues, the first thing I want to look at and the first thing I try to eliminate is biological and medical conditions. Okay. Sometimes, as we all know, if a dog is injured or they're not feeling good or something might be wrong, they may not be acting like themselves. And that's where we'll get some anxiety or, or issues going on. So I do, I do recommend getting an evaluation, getting a medical evaluation sometimes to be able to rule out, like I said, anything biological or medical. Now, that doesn't have to do with anxiety, <laughs> right? It's a biological or medical reason that that dog is overcompensating with anxiety or with aggression, maybe, or something like that that, right? Um, so I eliminate any biological factor. Then once we've eliminated the biological factor, then guess what? It's a behavioral issue. And that's how we have to address it. Okay. So how do we go about doing that? Well, uh, it's the same way as a human being, guys. Get out there and go for a run with your dog. They need consistent and good exercise. Okay. I've talked about a walk in the past. Go back and listen to my segment on how to properly walk your dogs. Of course, there's a right and a wrong way to do it. We want to make sure that we're doing it the right way. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, again, it's something that I try to live by and I'm not always the best at it, but (laughs) get out there and exercise, eat right. And that's going to help a lot for alleviating your dog's anxiety issues. Okay. Now, another thing I talked about giving your dog a task, giving them something to do, right? We can take our dog's out for a walk with us. We can take them for a swim. We can take them for a hike. We can teach them to do agility. We can make playtime more stimulating by creating games out of it. There are a lot of socializing our dogs, dog parks, doggy day camps. There's a lot of different ways to help alleviate a dog's anxiety. But if your dog is just sitting at home, sitting on the couch, and that's all they do seven days a week, it's no surprise they have anxiety. If all you're doing is spoiling your dogs with food and affection and not giving them structure, rules, boundary, exercise... No wonder your dog has anxiety. Okay, so this is this is a touchy subject. I get that. I understand. But we have to face the reality of it. We have to face the reality that you are the reason, most likely, your dog has anxiety issues. But you have the power to fix it. That's the really cool part about dogs. They live in the moment. You have the power to fix it. So get out there with your dog Exercise them, give them tasks, give them something to do, give them stimulation, give them a job, and they'll be a lot happier, okay? So going back, guys, we just got to reiterate everything. We got to talk about it, right? You're probably the reason you're giving your dog anxiety. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I know, I know. It's not what you want to hear. It's not what you want to hear, but it's the truth, and I have to tell you because that's my job. My job is to be truthful with you, and that's what I want to do. I want to be honest with you guys. I try to be honest with my clients, always, always truthful, always honest, and it's not necessarily the nicest conversation but it's what they need to hear and it's what you need to hear. So if you want to alleviate your dog's anxiety, I highly recommend trying to avoid those anti-anxiety meds. Instead, get yourself out there with your dog, get them on a walk, get them stimulated, give them something to do, go for a swim, doggy day camps, keep them active and mentally engaged and they'll be a lot healthier, okay? So, uh, you know, we could we could even dive into this stuff further, but I kind of tried to keep it as brief as I possibly could. But suffice it to say, guys, get out there and keep your dogs active. Get out there and work your dog. Give them structure. Give them rules. Give them boundaries. And they'll be a lot healthier and happier. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Greyhound. Greyhounds are members of the Hound Group. They are a sight hound. And males come in from 65 to 70 pounds and females 60 to 65 pounds. We all know the Greyhounds to be a sleek and beautiful dog, often referred to as the cheetah of the dog world. These guys are capable of incredible speeds and energy. They can actually reach speeds of up to 45 miles an hour. But once they get that energy out, they're also known for being just big old couch potatoes lying around the house. They can make wonderful and affectionate pets, but caution must be taken around small animals and even toy dog breeds. A lot of greyhounds are retired racing dogs, and, well, their prey drive was so highly reinforced and strengthened, so it's important to keep these dogs separate from potential prey-like animals. 
Caution must also be taken out in public with these dogs, ensuring that they are never off-leash when not in a safe, fenced area. Training can be a bit difficult for the inexperienced and, well, those who don't understand the specifics of the Greyhound breed. This breed should be socialized early with small children and animals to ensure success. Greyhounds tend to be a very healthy dog. As with most deep-chested breeds, they are susceptible to bloat, and other conditions that can occur are uh, cardiac and some eye issues. The history and origin of the Greyhounds starts somewhere around 5,000 to 8,000 years ago. Like most ancient breeds, their exact origin is a little unknown, but what we do know is that there are depictions of sighthound-type dogs found in areas from present-day Turkey all the way down to Egypt, Egypt dating around this time period. So where did the breed originate? Well, most likely somewhere in the Middle East. It was common for wild packs of dogs to follow nomadic peoples across the deserts and eat off their scraps. Now, they would actually also provide some protection around the perimeter of the camp, so they were tolerated by the humans. At some point, a special dog was discovered or bred for the specific task of hunting rabbits in fast, small game. Now, amazingly, the Greyhound has remained relatively unchanged for almost 2,000 years. That's right. The breed we know today, really not very many changes uh, in their genetics for that long. Now, we know they were used in ancient Egypt for hunting. We also knew, uh, know that they were loved by the Greeks and the Romans, as they're often depicted alongside the gods, whether it's a painting on a vase or a painting on walls. And in modern times, in the 19th century, the Greyhound enjoyed popularity for their coursing abilities. English nobility particularly took, to, uh, took a liking to them with Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband. Uh, you know, he had actually had a black and white Greyhound named Eos. By the end of the 19th century, Greyhound coursing was at its peak popularity and coursing meets were being held all over England. Racing was developed out of these large-scale coursing events, and the sport really took off after the mechanical lure was invented around 1912 by Owen Patrick Smith. Toward the later end of the 20th century, dog racing has been in steep decline. There are now uh, 41 states that have actually outright banned Greyhound racing. Last year, Alabama, Texas and Florida closed their last racetrack, so there is definitely a need for fosters and adoptions in those states. Now, Florida just closed their last tracks this past December, so if you're living in Florida, you're looking for a great companion, look no further. Find yourself a Greyhound Rescue near you and help one of these pups out. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and more. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Boss. Located in Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. up on Speak a Dogcast, it's our guest spot. And today's guest is Carol Novello from Mutual Rescue. Now she's here to talk about the organization, a bit about what they do, as well as her new book with the title Mutual Rescue. Now you can find that book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible, definitely a few mediums to get it out there. So be sure you check it out and please help me welcome to the show, Carol Novello. How are you today? I am great. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. It's great to be here. Excellent. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm so happy to have you on. Yeah. So, you know, let's just kind of start right there. Tell us what your title position is and tell us a little bit about Mutual Rescue. Yeah. So I am the founder of Mutual Rescue, which is a national initiative to change the conversation from people or animals to people and animals. And that came about when I was president of Humane Society Silicon Valley, because people would sometimes ask me, why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? And so that led to wanting to really illustrate at a very visceral level the impact that animals can have on our lives. 
So started producing short films to illustrate that. And our very first short film went insanely viral. And that led to an opportunity to produce more films, which led to an opportunity to actually eventually write a book. So that's how we got started. And what we're focused on now is actually not only producing really compelling, genuine content like the films and the book, but also creating toolkits to make it easier for shelters to implement programs that help drive the connection between animals and humans, as well as bringing in corporate sponsors who want to have a national message, but would like their impact to happen at the local level. So we're doing all kinds of stuff in that regards. That's really cool. Yeah. No, it's definitely poking around the website a bit and you guys can check that out too. It's mutualrescue.org. Uh, and it's really neat. There's a lot of different information on there. And like you said, a lot of the stories and short films. So it's really, um, quite fascinating the, the, what you guys are doing and really trying to bring that to light of, you know, how, how, what an impact a rescue animal can make on somebody's life in such a large way. So that's really well, nice. and what's yeah, and what's really interesting is you know, as I said, people are asking me that question: Why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? And I learned a little bit more, and I found out of the four hundred and forty-nine billion dollars that Americans give to charity every year, only three percent goes to animal and environmental-related causes combined. Wow. And so that really illustrated for me: we need to do more to help people understand whether you're giving time or money. When you are helping animals, you are helping people. And we want to make sure that people feel good about their desire to give and support animals, as well as encourage people to adopt animals to help them uh, heal, both two-legged and four-legged people, uh, and the animals to, to heal. So it's a, it is a mutual opportunity for both animals and people to come together in a meaningful way. That's awesome. And so tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you got started originally, you know, and then how it kind of led into this. Yeah, it's interesting. So I spent most of my career in the for-profit world. I have my MBA from Harvard Business School, so I was trained as a business person. I was a senior executive at Intuit for many years. Uh, And I loved high tech. I loved Intuit. um, But I decided to take a bit of a step back and uh, just kind of figure out where I wanted my life to go. And I thought I was going to go back into high tech. And one thing led to another. I was introduced to someone who was the board chair at Humane Society of Silicon Valley. And one thing led to another, and I joined the board, not thinking anything other than I was joining the board. Sure. And six months later, I actually had the opportunity to step into the role as president. And so I said, wow, you know, this is a great organization doing great work. And, you know, I, I thought maybe I would wait another 10 years, so to speak, before I gave <laughs> back. But it was just, again, a a great organization doing really compelling work. And I have a huge passion and love of animals and just decided to jump in with both feet. So I spent almost a decade as president of Humane Society of Silicon Valley and Mutual Rescue came out of uh, my time there. Wow. That's really cool. That's neat. So love dogs. You love animals. What kind of uh, what pets do you have? Well, right now I'm, I'm down to two cats, uh, both of whom are Humane Society Silicon Valley alumni. <laughs> um, unfortunately, my beautiful German shepherd, Tess, uh, passed away. It's now been almost two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's, uh, you can see her picture. She's pictured with me on the flap of, of the book. Uh, she was an amazing dog. So I'm, I'm getting ready. I've been renovating my house. But when that is done, um, there is at least one, if not two spots for uh, canines in my house. So Fantastic. the cats are going to have to adjust a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Get a puppy. <laughs> Let the no, cats put. No, you know, no, no, I don't want to no, go down that no. road again. Huh? No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I like to adopt older dogs. And, no, and my I... cats have. Yeah, my cats have figured out how the to cows, how to... That, that was why I was saying a puppy, right? It's a lot easier yeah. when the cats can kind of just come in, put the puppy in its place, and uh, and it all tends to work out a little nicer. Yeah, fair but... enough. Yeah, fair <laughs> yeah, enough. But well, no, that's, and, that's... Yeah. and you would know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. But your cats get along okay, I assume. They're, they're, they're all good there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah, no, puppies are, oh, gosh, puppies are too much work, first of all. They, um, they are you know, a lot of work. They are a lot of work. And, 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 and uh, just to touch on that point, you know, I like that you're saying you like to adopt older dogs. Um, you know, I've, I've adopted two older dogs myself, um, and they're, they're both no longer with us. Uh, it was a few years ago. But to, to a point, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I have to get a puppy to, to bond with this dog. No, you don't. Go, go, yeah, go yeah. out to the shelters, guys. You'd be so surprised if you know, again, if you know how to create a good bond and a good relationship with a dog. Yeah. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter the size, the breed, any of that. Cause whatever breed is good for you, um, age is kind of irrelevant. And there are so many dogs in shelters that are older, that need good homes. And, I'll, you know, look, in my experience... <laughs> Oh, how many homes do I walk into where people get these puppies thinking, I want a puppy, I want to shape and mold, and they look at me and go, what have I done? And I go, yeah. exactly, you know, you could have gone down to the shelter and had a nice, nice, calm, older dog who's just looking for some love and looking for a good companion, and you'd be surprised what an amazing relationship. Look, I, I, I will just say quickly, I had a half lab, half St. Bernard who I adopted at nine years old. Oh. And, you know, we, we didn't, we, we weren't sure we could have only had him maybe a year or two. And we actually had him for, I think it was about three and a half years and at three and a half years. It was so hard to lose him at the end there, you yeah. know, with just the bond we had formed with him. So again, I just kind of stress it out there. People thinking about getting a puppy, just go, go look at your shelters, take a look at what's out there because there are so many dogs that need a good home and older dogs can make a great addition as well. So I just, I had to touch on that being that you, you brought that up. So <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and I know we're going to talk about some of the films and some of the stories in those films, but, um, you know, a lot of uh, all the dogs that we feature in the mutual rescue stories are, are actually older dogs when they were adopted. So mm -hmm. they could be, you know, pretty compelling. And, um, you know, it's, it's great if you want to put the time and the effort into into training and, and, and uh, dealing with all the energy of a puppy. But <laughs> It is a lot of work, yes. and you know, I will I will say that a lot of people underestimate that, and Absolutely. and the animals that are coming back into the shelter a lot of times with dogs, they're people that got puppies and said this isn't what I signed up for, I didn't realize, and it's too much, and then those animals are coming into the shelter. So, um, if you're up for a puppy, that's awesome. Exactly. But um, you can have so many great experiences with animals that uh, are older. Exactly. Exactly. So everybody needs to hear that puppies are a ton of work. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I wanted to ask about the Doggy Day Out program because I thought that just sounded really neat. And there was even, you know, I'm on the, again on the website, uh, I saw that there was even some rescues in Florida that were participating in this program. So I'd love for you to talk more about that and uh, tell everybody what it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So Doggy Day Out um, is a program we collaborated with several shelters across the country to put together a toolkit to make it easier for shelters that don't have the program uh, uh, to create one and implement them. So if you're a shelter or a rescue group, you can go to mutualrescue.org and download the toolkit and that'll just make it easier and, and much more um, rap you can more rapidly implement the program because then it gives you a framework and you know everything that you need to get started. If you are interested in doing a doggy day out program, we have a directory on our website that lists shelters that have a doggy day out program, which is essentially the opportunity to just take a dog shelter dog out for an afternoon so it's a it's a low way a low barrier uh, to participation a low commitment in terms of your time to just take a dog out for the afternoon and what ends up happening is you you have an opportunity to interact with this dog and then and then people that have had that opportunity even if they can't adopt the dog sometimes they might they might like be like oh my gosh this dog is great i want to yeah. adopt it but now they have a, a connection and they're invested in like, I'm going to post on social and talk about how great this dog is. And it helps the dogs get adopted much more quickly. One of the first shelters in the country to do this program was in Fredericksburg, uh, Virginia, the Fredericksburg SPCA. And they saw their, uh, their dogs got adopted 20% faster when they started the Doggy Day Out program, wow. which is just amazing because yeah. the animal's getting more, you know, more people, more exposure. Sure. Um, which is amazing. So um, we're really excited about that program. Unfortunately, with uh, COVID, it's taken a back seat. A lot of, you know, shelters just aren't able to do it right now with all of the restrictions. So yeah. 
um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, when things start to open up again and the program will, will get reinvigorated. Um, we're working on a new program right now to help shelters uh, implement pet pantries in their community and to streamline uh, how that process works today for shelters that already have pet pantries. So that's our, our next pilot. Uh, and we'll have more information on that coming out in the next few months. Nice. Yeah, so that Doggy Day Out program, you know, I, I hear it a lot where I, you know, I'll go out and I'll be with my dogs. People go, oh, my gosh, I love dogs, but I work 10, 12-hour days. I just yeah. I just can't do that to a dog. I can't own a dog. So that's huge. You can get your doggy time in. You're doing some volunteering in a roundabout way. You're helping out those shelter dogs, not just get them adopted, but in the moment, getting them some stimulation and some exercise. Yeah, exactly. So you know yeah. something, people? If you can't, hey, if you can't, uh, and again, COVID-related, check with your local shelters. Uh, but again, you can check out Mutual rescue.org and see the participating shelters there. Uh, but that's a great way to get your dog time in, get some dog love in and, and get a dog out. So I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, neat. I'll tell you how, how, how we decided to pursue that as our first program was when I was at Humane Society of Silicon Valley, we had a dog named Frosty that had been with us for a very long time, I think almost a year. And uh, we were trying to figure out how, how do we get this dog you know, to get more exposure and, and how do we get this dog, dog into the right home? So we started doing more on social media and saying, hey, you know, come take Frosty for the weekend. You know, or no, it was first, you know, like, does somebody want to foster Frosty? Nobody wanted to foster. Hey, come take Frosty for the weekend. No takers on that. Hey, just take her for an overnight. <laughs> Still crickets. And then we said, does anybody want to take her for the afternoon? And we were flooded with people that wanted to come take her out for the afternoon and what ended up again exactly what happened is she started going out all these doggy day outs she had this big fan club they started advocating for her we we're posting it on social and somebody that actually used to volunteer for the organization saw these posts in arizona and she drove up to uh, northern california to pick up frosty no kidding. because she just fell in love with her yeah wow that's too cool yeah that so that's neat. what we were like, yeah, okay, just, we gotta yeah, we make gotta we gotta a... make sure we gotta make it into a thing. Yeah. And that's when we we pulled it into the mutual rescue initiative and started <laughs> collaborating with other shelters to say, Hey, you know, what are you doing? What are your best practices? Let's get this together in a toolkit. And then um, I think we've got close to a hundred shelters that are listed in the directory. And again, you know, we were we were going gangbusters in terms of shelters that were implementing the program before COVID hit. So sure. I'm really looking forward to kind of getting that reinvigorated. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's really, really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I know we were going to talk about the stories and some of the films, if, you know, let's, let's get into that and I'm going to kind of, you know, hand it over to you and I, we, I would love to, for you to tell some of the stories and tell everybody out there a bit more about it. So. Yeah. So what ended up happening, you know, going back to that question of uh, why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? So I started doing a presentation out in the community called Why Helping Animals Helps People. And one of the stories that I was telling in that presentation was the stare, the story of Eric O'Gray, who adopted a dog from Humane Society of Silicon Valley. His name was Petey. And Eric's story is that he was extremely overweight. He weighed about 340 pounds mm. um, and went to go see a naturopathic doctor after some really devastating events in his life and was going to give it one last shot to try and lose weight. And the doctor recommended the first thing she recommended was that he adopt a shelter dog and walk that shelter dog a half an hour uh, at least once a day and that was that was her first prescription to him so i was sharing that story because eric had had emailed us after he had adopted pd and gone on to lose 140 pounds wow. through that recommendation um, so i was telling that story out in the community and i was subsequently introduced to a man named David Whitman, who used to be the executive producer of the Tech Awards in Silicon Valley, which is kind of like the Silicon Valley's version of the Oscars. And he said, you know, I, I asked him, he wanted to do something with animals. And I, I told him about this presentation I was doing. I said, can you breathe some magic into this? And he came up with the term mutual rescue and, and said, I think we should do short films and invite people to submit their stories. And so we decided to take Eric and Petey's story uh, and make that the first film because I'd already been sharing it with the community and, and thought it was so compelling. So what's great 
about Petey is that when when Eric came into the the shelter to adopt, he said, "I'd like an obese middle-aged dog so that we have something in common." <laughs> and uh, so not only did Eric lose 140 pounds, but Petey lost 25 pounds. That's awesome. So they they went on the journey together, and. Um, when we released that film, it was actually Valentine's Day of 2016, so almost five years ago now, and uh, it ended up going insanely viral. Since it's been released, it's actually been viewed more than 100 million times across the globe on various social media platforms, but it really took off with this one post on SF Gates' Facebook page. That one post had 35 million views, 200,000 shares, and 50,000 comments. Wow. And the story was actually um, selected by the New York Times as the number one news story out of California in 2016. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. That's amazing how that got going. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we were really stunned by the response, and we're like, I think we're onto something here. Yeah. And uh, and that led the opportunity to uh, to create more films. Um, so we've got, I think, almost I think we've got 12 films now, short films. They run anywhere between five minutes. I think our longest is maybe 10 minutes. Um, and they cover all different walks of life and, and different human conditions uh, that just shows you how much of an impact that animals uh, can have in our lives. And the success of the films. So after Eric and Petey, all of our other films collectively have been viewed 53 million times. So they've also been very popular on social media. And the success of that led to the opportunity to write the book, Mutual Rescue, How Adopting a Homeless Animal Can Save You Too. And what the book covers is not just stories and tons of stories outside of the films. So there's lots of, of news stories in there as well, but it also covers the science. So it addresses both the head and the heart which I think is really compelling because it's one thing to have an experience of your own and read a story about it. You go, Oh, I kind of identify with that. But then to hear that science kind of backs it up yeah. and you know, there's a very real phenomenon when you are, we are petting uh, your cat or your dog or your yes. pig or whatever rescue animal you have. Um, you're releasing all these wonderful chemicals in your body, you know, pro, you know, um, prolactin and serotonin and oxytocin and, and they are flooding you with feel-good chemicals that are having real, you know, physiological changes that are going on inside you, and that's pretty amazing. It is, it is, and they even, you know, seen some of those studies where they also measured the dogs' brains as well, and it yeah. was the same response. That was the cool thing: is the mutual response, you know, of of the human and the dog both having that same thing, and that's yeah, that's right. The it, dog is yeah. getting just as much out of it exactly. as exactly, yeah, and yeah. it's literally it really cool. Yeah, and I, look, I'm I'm all about. To me, it's all about science. It's not that I don't like to do the feely stuff, and it's not that I don't yeah. love my dogs. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, my job as being a behavior specialist is to quantify and qualify things. So yeah. when I can see something like that, that we can actually prove and it's tangible and it shows us the bond that we have created there, it's just, I mean, that's incredible. It really is. Yeah. Well, that's why I was so excited about the opportunity to write the book, because mm -hmm. I wanted to bring the science into the mix and say, you know, it's it's great. I mean, our our films are incredibly moving, and you know, you need a box of tissues, and it's a feel good. It's not, you know, like you'll cry, but it'll be cathartic. I promise. Yeah. And uh, but you know, it doesn't bring the science in, and so the book really does, a, I think, a great job of blending those two together, and I think just makes a really powerful statement um, in terms of the fact that we do need to shift our perspective and realize that when you're caring for animals are taking care of animals it's not a one-way street and we get so much benefit as humans and we need to look at it from this broader perspective absolutely absolutely love that again look at look at that look at their needs and our needs how about that uh, how fantastic about that? yeah that's what it should be <laughs> that's what i preach all the time right uh, that's fantastic yeah no that's really neat and of course uh you know i want to make sure to mention that uh all the earnings from the book sales actually benefit mutual rescue um they do. And, and as carol said you know mutual rescue is uh an extent you guys are a national a national initiative through the humane society of silicon valley right that's correct yes yeah. exactly so again it's, it's important you know 
you guys buying the book and reading it not only is fantastic in helping spread the word, uh, but it's also going to go right back and directly benefit animals uh, in the long run. So that's just also amazing and have to make sure everybody knows that. So I just want to say it again, guys, if you can find her book on uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon Audible, it's called Mutual Rescue and be sure you definitely check it out. So I wanted to ask, you know, with all these different stories you've come across and everything, is there maybe one story in particular, one rescue story that you found most compelling, that you liked the most, that was most heartwarming, Any, anything like that? You know, there are so many. I it, yeah. it, it would not be fair to be able to say <laughs> that one is my favorite, but I will just share with you a particular story from my own life that it is my favorite because of, of what it means to me in my own life rather than picking out of the stories that we received. Because as I said, they're just all so amazing. Sure. Um, and they cover so many different things. But the, and I, and I talk about this in, in the book, but when I was growing up, up, my father didn't particularly care for cats. He, um, and he was a wonderful man. I mean, I, I loved my father, but if I had to say there was one downside, it was like, you know, he didn't really love cats. In fact, I wouldn't say he hated them, but at best he tolerated them. <laughs> but uh, when I was growing up, I just remember, you know, him saying to me, don't kiss the cat. Cats have germs. And that was his thing. And then we got this cat named Chester. And Chester was this big orange marmalade cat. And he looked like somebody had flicked white paint on his face. And, and he just came into our house and uh, honestly he decided that my dad was his guy and every Friday night, my dad would, would go up uh, into his den and he'd watch wall street week with Louis Rukeyser and no one else in the family had any desire to do that. But Chester would follow my dad upstairs and he'd hop into his lap and he would just be glued to my dad and to the TV screen watching Lou Rue. And one day I happened to walk by and I did this double take and I'm like, look who's kissing the cat. Like, I, like he just like, he totally melted, you know, my father's heart. And yeah. the reason why I love that story so much is my father was approaching cats in a very intellectual way. You know, like cats have germs and, and, and this and that. But it was the way that my, you know, Chester touched my father's heart and by touching his heart he changed his mind and that was such a profound lesson for me at a very early age that i've carried with me and so that's not a typical mutual rescue story but it is in the context i think of of really the lessons that animals can teach us yes and you know just like what i think about it you know, Chester didn't hold it against my dad that my dad didn't seem to like him. And in fact, he wasn't going to be deterred by that. He had such self-confidence. Like, it's, it's funny to say a cat has self-confidence, but he did. And it was like, he's like, I'm awesome. And you're going to figure that out eventually. So I'm just going to be awesome. And then you're going to show me how awesome you are. And and he did. And and it was amazing. And, you know, my father passed away at home and, and Chester, you know, was there the night that he died and wouldn't leave his side. And, and after my dad passed, Chester would go into his closet and just wail because he missed my dad so much. So oh, wow. it really was a, an amazing love story and, um, and one that taught me a really important lesson in a very early age. Wow. That's fantastic. Oh, really cool. Really, really neat. So, you know, you guys can hear this is, this is, um, you know, this is what Mutual Rescue, I think, is really all about. You guys are all about um, showing people the connection that we have with animals, can have with animals. Um, and, well, in more extension, the important part is going out and rescuing these animals, going out and yeah. giving them a good home to be able yeah. to have and make those connections. So I uh, can't stress it enough that everybody should go out there. should definitely check out MutualRescue.org. Um, Carol, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for your time, uh, your great stories. And, you know, again, you guys can see continuations of this. I'm going to say it again, MutualRescue.org. Check it out. And, of course, you can find her new book, Mutual Rescue, again, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon on Audible. I know I've got it on Audible. I'm going to be listening to it this week. So be sure you guys go and check that out. And again, just thank you so much for being here and thanks for being a guest today. Thanks, Dave. It was really fun. Awesome. Thanks. Have a great night.
Now, any of you out there who've been listening to my show regularly, you've heard me talk about Southern Pride Gourmet Foods. Now, look, this isn't an advertisement. This is a straight-up endorsement. Ken Ko over at Southern Pride Gourmet Foods, I know him very well. He's a great guy, small business owner, and more importantly, his products are amazing. Look, I love to cook, personally. I really do. I love to cook. I love to be in the kitchen, and I, I try to get better, and I, I like to think of myself as a decent chef. <laughs> But I love using Ken's products in the kitchen because they're just so darn good. I can't stress it enough. They're incredible. Uh, look, I, I, I know some of you go, David, dogs and, and food products, they don't really go together. And you're right, they don't. But that's just it. That's how good these things are that I needed to come on my show and give Ken a shout out for this. Give him my endorsement because of how amazing his stuff is. You got to go check it out, guys. SouthernPrideGourmetFoods.com. He ships nation wide. You heard me right. Nationwide shipping. So go check it out. He's got spice rubs that I use on my steaks now all the time. He has got amazing olive oils. He's got barbecue sauces. The uh, spicy, like spicy, spicy apple butter barbecue sauce. That stuff is good. And you can also buy his jams and jellies. I've been using them not only on like toast, but I'm putting them on my proteins like barbecue chicken. Uh, I actually, he makes a, a sweet potato butter. Oh, that was for dinner last night on my barbecue chicken. It was amazing, guys. I can't stress it enough. I'm going to say it again. SouthernPrideGourmetFoods.com. You got to go check it out. And of course, I have to give the endorsement of my favorite product of his, his beef jerky. Oh, he has a ton of different flavors. It practically melts in your mouth. It's literally, I'm not even exaggerating. It's literally the best beef jerky I have ever eaten. You know, I bought some beef jerky for my in-laws for Christmas from Ken. It's already gone and they've already reordered. <laughs> That's how good this stuff is, guys. I'm not joking around. I'm not messing around. Ken's a small business owner, a good local guy, and that's why I'm here to give him my endorsement and his stuff is incredible. Go check it out for yourself. SouthernPrideGourmetFoods.com. Drop him an email. He's a great guy. You can talk to him directly. He'll make sure you get exactly what you need. Once again, SouthernPrideGourmetFoods.com, where everything that they have is yummy for the tummy. The answer to today's trivia question, how many eyelids does a dog have? Three. Yes, they have an upper eyelid, a lower eyelid, and a third eyelid that is a nictitating membrane that keeps the eye moist and protected. Next up on Speak Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. Our first question today comes from Christy all the way in Kobe, Japan. Palm City Kara, Kobe no Christy Konnichiwa. Christy asks, our one-year-old golden doodle pees when she is nervous about meeting new people. How can I train her out of this behavior? Well, the first and easiest, well, maybe not easiest, <laughs> but the easiest thing really is to tell your guests or tell new people to ignore your dog when they first meet her. Pretend like she doesn't exist. No eye contact, nothing. That can help curb a bit of the overexcitement. What's ended up happening here is there's a pattern forming, okay? It's not even necessarily um, nervous. Maybe it's excitement. Now, without seeing it, you know, seeing particularly exactly what's going on, I can't tell you whether it's nervousness or overexcitement. Maybe a little of both. Um, but again, the first thing you want to do is tell new people, tell guests, tell anybody coming to your home to just ignore her. Pretend she doesn't exist. The next thing you want to do is have her leashed up. Now, of course, I'm sure if you're out in public, you have her leashed up. But if you're at home, people don't often think about leashing up their dog when people come to the door. But that's definitely what you want to do. That way she can't run over and pee or you have the ability to guide and direct her and guide and direct her focus. That's the idea. Okay. And then you can use treats and try to redirect her focus toward you as opposed to being on the new person. Okay. Once we can redirect and guide that focus and she's paying a little less attention to the new people, then I might go over and introduce her to that person. And when I do, the person should still be ignoring her quick interactions, quick hello. We turn and walk away, give them a treat. We let her walk up, sniff, turn away, we'll let her walk a treat. You know, I'm not going to get too in depth on this because really what this is, is this is the same exercise as greetings at the front door. So you can go back and listen to my segment on the front door and I talk more in depth about greetings and how to walk over and introduce yourself 
to our, excuse me, introduce your dog uh, to a person. And really, that actually talks about how to head off those undesired behaviors. So that's the idea is to try to head it off, create a new pattern. And you can even use treats once the dog, once we do get up and say hello to the person, we can actually utilize a treat. So we're associating something good with the person and changing that behavioral pattern. Next question. This comes from Marcus in Orlando, Florida. Marcus says, my puppy tends to have accidents only in carpeted areas of the house. What can I do to fix this? Well, you know, it's very natural for dogs to want to go on a carpeted area. And the reason's pretty simplistic, you know, uh, a carpet's going to absorb the pee and make less of a mess. Okay, so it's instinctual for the dog to want to make less of a mess, to go somewhere that the pee is going to be absorbed. Um, so they tend to find <laughs> those wonderfully expensive area rugs, right? They tend to go to those places. Now, the easiest thing you can do is block off those areas, right? You have a puppy. They don't know any better. You're still dealing with housebreaking. Just manage those areas. Put a puppy fence up. Make sure you're closing doors to bedrooms that have carpets. That's the easiest way to redirect them from that. Now, of course, we always want to make sure we're using a good cleaner. Uh, I've recommended this cleaner before. Nature's Miracle. They make great stuff. You need to make sure you're actually using a cleaner that breaks down the chemical composition of the urine so your dog doesn't smell it, and they're less likely to want to repeat that behavior. But to get your dog to stop being on the carpet, well, that goes back to housebreaking. You can listen to my podcast on uh, getting a new puppy, and I talk more about housebreaking in there. Um, but really, the easiest way is to make sure you're cleaning it properly and create some sort of boundary or physical barrier to keep them from going there. Next question. This comes from Anthony in Brooklyn, New York. Anthony asks, what is this force-free training method I keep hearing about, and should I be using it to train my dogs? Anthony, you are a little ahead of me, my friend. <laughs> I am going to be doing a whole segment on force-free training. Um, look, here, here, here's the reality, people. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as force-free training. There isn't. I'm sorry. There's not. Do you put a leash on your dog? The answer is yes. Then guess what? By definition, you're using force. There is no such thing as force-free training. Now, I'll get more in-depth on this, but dogs are physical animals. They're physical predators, and to ignore that fact is pure ignorance. Please don't use force-free training methods. They are not effective. They're not natural. They don't work. That's it for the podcast today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And a very special thank you to Carol Novello from Mutual Rescue for being on our guest spot. Once again, guys, you can check out her book. Find it on Amazon, Audible, all different mediums, Mutual Rescue. Yes. And if you guys have any questions for the listener Q&A, email me questions at speakadogcast.com. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget to get out there and walk your dog.